<clears throat> We're in Numbers chapter 14. Israel, as a people, as a nation, they are mournful. They've heard the penalty that God has given to Moses for their rebellion against him. And their penalty is uh, those that are 20 years and older will not be able to go into the promised land. That's, uh, that seems severe, but so was their sin. Their sin was severe. Now, I golf, and in golf we have a saying, and this is after you've hit a bad shot, take your medicine. Don't try to make some ridiculous, difficult shot to save that hole. Don't spoil your whole round on one hole by trying to make a ridiculous shot. Moses has explained God's word to the people. Their penalty, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land. And this nation, everybody 20 years and older, will die off in the wilderness. Now that's devastating news. And it causes the people to mourn and uh, have deep regrets. So let's read about their reaction in verses 39 through 45 of chapter 14. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from camp. And then the Amalekites and Canaanites who dwelt in the mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as, far as Hormah. We can identify with the way Israel felt, how they are mourning. We all feel remorse after we have sinned. If somehow we could feel that remorse ahead of time, perhaps we would not be so captivated by sin. Israel has sinned, and now they will attempt in their own way to rectify their sin, rectify their sin of unbelief. <clears throat> In their hearts and in their minds, they've got to do something to regain God's favor and the promise of the promised land. Israel has sinned by accepting 
the unbelieving report of the majority of the spies that went into the promised land. The 10 out of 12 spies give a bad report, a cowardly report, and Israel has bought into it. Israel has rejected God's word through Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. And Israel has been quick to turn against Moses and against the good and encouraging report of Caleb and Joshua. And now Israel hears from God through Moses, no promised land. You're out. Because you tested me. The children of Israel tested God out in the wilderness, and God even counted the times that they tested him. You have tested me these ten times. Ten times God was willing to forgive and kind of what we would say overlook their sins. But now he said, that's it. Here's your punishment. Verse 40 gives us the insight to the plans of Israel. We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised and kind of forget about our sin. Israel feels that they can get back into God's good graces by their own behavior. Their plan is to go up and take the land from the Amalekites and Canaanites. The problem with their plan God has nothing to do with it. He's no part of it whatsoever. Most of Israel, those that are 20 years and older, have disqualified themselves from the promised land. And now they want to try to get back that promise. But it's not going to happen. We are the greatest dangers, I should say I am the greatest danger to myself and family, when I only hear from God partly. I will hear a word from the Lord, not the entire message, and will act upon partial information. I assume that I know the will of God completely, when in truth I've only heard him in part. And that is called seeing through a glass darkly. <laughs> Perhaps the most asked question that I receive as a pastor is, what is God's will for me? Uh, we all want to know what God's will is for us. But a person uh, will come to me and they'll lay out what they believe God is saying to them and what God is directing them to do. And that's not uncommon. And when we truly desire God's will, know this, God is faithful to give it. I want God, when he gives me his will, I want him to confirm it to me. Not only in major decisions, but in, in, in what I call smaller decisions. I want God to confirm his will to me. And there's nothing wrong with asking God to confirm his will. But I don't set any standard on how he confirms. I say, God, you just let me know what your will is any way you please. 
Because, you know, we can get into a rut. We can get into a mindset where we set up the parameters of the ways that God can speak to us. Lord, if you want me to sell my ski boat, have someone come along and give me $1,000 more than it's worth. Hmm, who benefits from that? <laughs> or if you want me to buy this new large screen TV, have a parking place open up right in front of Best Buy. And then you circle the building to that parking space opens up. Rather, we should be asking God, confirm your will any way you choose. And one of the reasons I think God is not always quick to give us his will, he wants us to be solid in our commitment to do his will when he gives it. Israel, they feel like they have to do something to get back in to God's good graces. And isn't that just like mankind? We're constantly looking for behavior or ways which we will think pleases God. That basically describes all religions of the world, apart from Christianity. Only... Only in Christianity do we see God reaching out to mankind, giving us a right standing by faith. John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we should not perish but believe in him. That's God reaching to us. But God wants us to be obedient. And he wants obedience out of us above sacrificial behavior in any way. He wants us to be obedient to him. In verse 41, Moses has a question for the people. Why do you transgress the commands of the Lord? And then he says, you will not succeed. But the people presume upon God's forgiveness. Presumption is the sin of setting our expectations upon God for our benefit. That's the sin of presumption. We set the parameters. We set the expectations on God and how he should act towards us. We presume upon God for his favor and for his forgiveness. James, in his little epistle, gives us an example of presuming upon God for his favor, and James calls it boasting. Turn with me to James chapter 4, and we'll look at, uh, oh, five verses there, I believe it is. James chapter 4, 13 through 17. <clears throat> Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? 
It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Our plans, if they're not based in God's will, they're boastful. If you're not considering God in your plans and in your future, you're being arrogant and you're boasting. Jesus tells us that we should say and plan around the will of the Lord. If the Lord wills, we shall live and go and do this or that. But to declare our plans for profiting success apart from God is boasting and it's evil. But we think we know things. It's the way things work. We think we've kind of lived enough of life to figure out how to make a profit. And too often we ask God to bless the plans that we have already made. We make our plans and then ask God to bless them. If we're presumptuous for profit, and that presumption is evil, how evil then is assuming upon God's forgiveness and grace? It's a dangerous thing to assume that my sinful behavior will be forgiven even though I know it's a sin before I commit it. You're walking on thin ice. That type of thinking is contrary to the goodness of God. Assuming upon God's grace is trying to take God and his loving characteristics away from him, and that can be extremely dangerous. Jesus had something to say about this, about presuming upon forgiveness. Luke 18, you want to turn to this. This is probably one of my best-liked little stories that Jesus tells. I don't believe, quote-unquote, in parables. I don't think our Lord ever had to use a parable or a made-up story to bring forth a point. I think he knew man well enough that he used real stories. <laughs> But in Luke 18, Jesus is traveling about Israel. He's healing. He's teaching in parables. He's telling the people that the last days will be like the days of uh, Noah and so forth. But let's look at chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. And he spoke this parable to some who boasted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. <clears throat> Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Quite a statement. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, Jesus speaking, I tell you this. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to those who trusted in themselves for righteousness. Righteousness. It simply means a right standing with God. The Pharisee, he trusts in himself for righteousness before God. But his righteousness breaks down within the first verse there, for he despised his fellow man. You can't have a right standing with God and hate your fellow man. So that broke down right there. This Pharisee trusted in his religious observance of the law for righteousness. His thinking is, only a Pharisee like myself has good standing with God. Jesus gives us a comparison between the tax collector and this Pharisees. Now, you have to understand that the tax collectors were despised by the general public of Israel. They were considered traitors to their countrymen, to their fellow Jews. Tax collectors were guilty of doing Rome's dirty work for them, and that was to collect taxes from their fellow man. Most tax collectors became wealthy, and they became wealthy by overcharging taxes. And you know, Rome could care less as long as they receive their allotment of the taxes. Rome knew that tax collectors cheated the public. The public knew tax collectors cheated them. But it was all the system, and nobody cared. It just went along. Don't say it sounds like our IRS, because it meant mine. Jesus has harsh words for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He has more harsh words for the Pharisees and the religious scribes and so forth than any other group. More than the hated tax collectors. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, was a tax collector. Tax collectors, again, they were rich, but they paid a heavy price for their riches. They were outcast among their own people, and they were hated by fellow Jews. If you got into a crowded situation uh, and you were a tax collector, you could expect to get poked in the ribs, pinched, your toes stepped on, because people wanted to take vengeance out on you as a tax collector. So tax collectors stayed away from crowds. 
But the Pharisees, on the other hand, were considered the good and the righteous people of their society. The Pharisees felt like they deserved God's blessings because of their righteous behavior. And in Matthew 5, Jesus shocked his disciples when he told them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, no way you will see heaven. You've got to be better than the Pharisees and the scribes. But in our story, the Pharisee stood and he prayed with himself. (laughs) What an indictment (laughs) against a man. And this indictment comes from Jesus himself. This man said, I thank you, God, that I am special. (laughs) I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust, not an adulterer. And especially, I'm not like that tax collector. And then we hear the tax, uh, not the tax collector, but the Pharisee give his good qualities. And I thank you, God, that I can fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I possess. Fasting and giving tithes, they're good things but they do not make you righteous. Not for a minute. But many Christians, what we would call legalistic Christians, are like the Pharisees. They think their behavior is why they enjoy God's blessings. Now, we're going to have a potluck here shortly, but most of us could stand to miss a meal or two. We could afford to fast a little bit. It wouldn't hurt us. And to give our offerings, you always hear me say this, don't give an offering unless you can do it cheerfully because it does you no good whatsoever if you don't give it cheerfully. It really bothers me as a pastor when I hear Ministries beg or plead for money. It bothers me that they're insinuating that God is either just about broke or he's about to declare bankruptcy. That is not true. We, as believers, are allowed to give and support God's kingdom. That is a blessing. But back to the tax collector. He feels so guilty, so bad, he cannot even raise his eyes and look up to heaven. But he beats on his breast and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God was. And the tax collector is forgiven and he's justified. And all Jesus says about the presumptuous Pharisee who trusted in his prayers to himself, his guilt remained. Now, take that back to Numbers. The children of Israel want to make things right between themselves and God. And they presumptuously 
go up to battle the Amalekites and the Canaanites, and they are soundly defeated. We cannot presume for a moment that our behavior, even fasting or giving of tithes, justifies us before God. Not going up to battle against God's enemies will not justify us either. We cannot fight God's battles for him. Fighting the Amalekites and the Canaanites will not give Israel a right standing. The only thing that will give us a right standing with God is to apply the sacrificial death of Christ for my sins and that will give me righteousness. Only the blood of Christ can make atonement for my sins and my failures. That's God the Father's remedy, and no other remedy works. Here's the good news. If we are faithful to confess our sins and repent of our sins, Jesus is faithful to forgive us. That is the best news mankind has ever heard. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, I think too often we are presumptuous without even knowing it. Sometimes we think we've got things figured out. How to get through this life, how to go and save a little money, make a little profit, and go on and, and live the good life. James tells us that's being boastful. We don't want to do that, Lord. We want to be looking to you, our Lord and our God, to guide us and direct us. We want to be, like James talks about, we want to be saying, if God wills, we will do this or that. So help us to correct our thinking, Lord, to walk in your statutes, to consult you with our plans before we make them, not after we make them. And Lord, for sure, we want to be trusting in you for the forgiveness of our sins. We don't want to be like that Pharisee who prayed within himself, Lord. What an indictment. My goodness. Lord, we don't want to assume for a moment upon your grace. Lord, we would pray, keep us from sin. We don't want to be committing sin and then assuming you will forgive us. That is a slippery slope that we don't want to go down. So help us, Lord. Help us to be mature spiritually, not to assume upon grace. Let us understand that it is your goodness that forgives us not us deserving it. So be with us, Lord. We ask you to just bless our time together in the potluck, Lord. Just make it a good time of fellowship, and we thank you for your blessings upon us, Lord. In this we pray in your name. Amen.